0: This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, bringing you vital information to boost your health, your finances, and your rights. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: Good afternoon. Welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Two years this week since COVID-19 was officially declared a pandemic, we look back and ahead. This is National Nutrition Month. Has the pandemic changed your eating habits? But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. New research finds a correlation between even modest alcohol consumption and reduced brain size. University of Pennsylvania research shows for 50-year-olds, going from one alcoholic drink, or about a half a beer a day, to two, such as a pint of beer or glass of wine, was the equivalent of aging two years, and going to three drinks was similar to aging over three years. The study differs from guidelines including recommendations that women consume no more than one drink per day on average Double that for men. There's been a big drop in the number of divorces in this country. Statistics Canada says the number of marital splits last year was the lowest since 1973. But analysts point out that restrictions caused by the pandemic probably kept those numbers down. The agency says there were almost 43,000 divorces in 2020, a sharp drop from 57,000 divorces the year before. Russian President Vladimir Putin has signed a law allowing his government to quickly raise pensions. It's part of a set of anti-crisis measures after Russia was hit by a wave of economic sanctions over its invasion of Ukraine. Another new initiative signed into law by Putin gives individuals and small and medium-sized businesses the right to request credit holidays. This, as thousands of anti-war protesters have been detained across Russia. How's your Wordle score? It seems Canadians are not the best in the world at solving the popular online word puzzle. We ranked 17th, beating the U.S. in 18th spot. Sweden is ranked the best in the world with an average of 3.71 guesses per puzzle. But compared to the rest of the country, Toronto is ranked the best in the online word puzzle that's taken the Internet by storm. We're slightly ahead of Vancouver. Yet in terms of cities globally, Toronto ranked 25th. Canadian research is showing the benefits of using therapy dogs in hospital emergency rooms. It's found to have a significant impact on decreasing pain, anxiety, and depression. The University of Saskatchewan study found improvements after just 10 minutes with the dogs. The first controlled trial of its kind was limited to one emergency department, so it's not clear if the results would apply in other places. I'm Christine Ross, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world.
2: We have therefore made the assessment that COVID-19 can be characterized as a pandemic.
1: This past Friday marked a grim milestone. It's been two years since the World Health Organization officially declared COVID-19 a pandemic. And while there's been no official end to the virus and its variants, the world tries to turn the page on this once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that upended the world. In the same week of the two-year anniversary, the global COVID death toll surpassed 6 million. For some perspective on where we've been and what's ahead, we reach Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network. Learn to live with COVID. This is the mantra that many countries around the world are now espousing, but with no official end to COVID-19. Is this the right messaging?
2: I mean, I think that the the, the intention of the message message is right. We do have to learn to live with the with the pathogen itself. That said, I think um, it's very easy to take that and distort it a little bit and kind of make it into a message of we no longer need to care about COVID nineteen. We do. The pandemic is ongoing. It's still causing consequences. the The idea is we need to learn how to move forward without it sort of, um, I guess, overshadowing other things that are equally important. And how to integrate, you know, some of the pandemic measures that we have in place into our daily lives. So it's a little more seamless. That, to me, is what it means to live with COVID.
1: So what I'm also hearing a lot from people is that this is the new normal, that we can't go back to the way things were before the pandemic, which in itself can be upsetting for some. But is this, is this what we're looking forward to now, a new normal? I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I think that this
2: is going to be multiple transitions. It's not going to be, you know, the pandemic is on today, it's off tomorrow, and the moment that WHO declares that we're no longer in a pandemic, everything's going to feel like it was, you know, 2019 and prior. The world has changed around us, even beyond this pandemic. We're accustomed to adjusting to things differently, and we should be accustomed to adjusting to, you know, what the world is going to be like once the pandemic is no longer in place. But it's not going to be an on-off switch that, that we experience. We're, we're going to have, you know, multiple transitions of, um, you know, things feeling a little bit different from what we were expecting before, but perhaps not as extreme as what we've been through over the last you know, two years where we've had intense measures in place and restrictions.
1: So the WHO has said that the acute phase of the pandemic could end by the middle of this year if 70% of the world is vaccinated. Is that a reachable goal?
2: It should be a reachable goal. I think, you know, one of the things I've learned from this pandemic is when we uh, gather together, we're able to accomplish quite a bit. You know, it takes that collective will, though, to get there. And if we're able to commit to helping each other, that means other countries, not just, you know, looking inwardly towards what's happening in Canada, we're able to help other countries get there. It's to everybody's benefit. And that really needs to be one of the things we we do in this year as we move forward. You know, beyond that, we will not see an end to new variants occurring to, you know, spikes in cases.
1: So let's talk a little bit about the term endemic and pandemic. A University of Oxford virologist has said that it's become one of the most misused of the pandemic, saying that a disease can be endemic and both widespread and deadly, and pointing out, in fact, that malaria killed more than 600,000 people last year. And 1.5 million died of tuberculosis. So are we being maybe a bit too cavalier with the term endemic? I think
2: we are. Again, it speaks to people's desire to be moving out of what we've been experiencing the last two years in this pandemic. Um, You know, the the virus SARS-CoV-2 that causes COVID-19 will likely have epidemic potential. And it may be like many other viruses that we see that circulate in low levels at times but can spike up you know, at times of opportunity, typically in winter when people are, you know, congregating indoors and and uh, it's cooler outside. And that may be more realistic as to what we'll see moving forward into the future. Uh, but simply calling something endemic or it's going to become endemic and using that as a way to dismiss what the impacts are going to be, I think is dangerous. You know, I think that's not the message we need to be getting out to people. We have to, and this is coming back to that related concept of learning to live with a virus, we do have to learn how to accept this into our lives as a reality, which may change things, but it's not going to be as disruptive as when you're in a full-out pandemic. That's really what we need to be thinking about.
1: Um, I want to ask you a little bit about this mistrust of healthcare officials that seem to be absent in the beginning when people were out at 7 o'clock at night banging the pots and pans to the point that some were vilified. And in fact, in Toronto, healthcare workers had to have um, people walk them to and from work amid the the convoy protests. How did this come to be?
2: I think, again, it's a symptom of people's, um, you know, just complete fatigue and exhaustion through this pandemic. It's been a long go. We've heard multiple different messages come out over time. Everyone's been hoping that with vaccination being widespread within the country, life could go back to normal. And we are just at that stage now where that reality is starting to hit. That you know this is not normal, and it might take some time before we get back to something more comfortable. That is, I think, what's fueling a lot of the anger. And healthcare workers were a symbol of this pandemic in many ways, whether we like it or not. One of the big consequences of getting, getting COVID nineteen, getting sick, being in the hospital being reliant on these kinds of services. And it's that constant reminder that, you know, even though outside on a Friday night it may feel more normal, in reality there there are other people who are taking some of the brunt of this. Um, and so I think that it's, it's easy for some individuals to kind of uh, turn the anger rather than feel, you know, compassion towards that, feel actually a bit resentful of that. Um, so there's that. And then there's a whole other aspect of it that I think is really interesting. And I think there was a brewing... Um, concern around vaccine hesitancy and mistrust, and with so much of the focus being on vaccinating and how important it is to get vaccines out there to try and help people and, and protect them from the severe consequences of COVID-19, it may have just awakened a lot more of that sentiment and allowed it to spread um, during a time of uncertainty when people were not really sure what to, to, to really believe and um, and were feeling like they were inundated with a lot of new
1: information. Generally speaking, what do we know now that will help us navigate the future?
2: I think the focus and the attention on long-term care is really helpful in developing standards like care are important pieces of work. But more importantly, what we've learned is that working together as a system is really powerful. So having hospitals team up with long-term care homes and helping them to navigate through some of these difficult times that they've never experienced before through outbreaks through um, developing infection prevention and control programs that are robust and will protect you from getting into large-scale outbreaks. It's been an incredibly positive experience on both sides. And we've learned about what, you know, the issues are in long-term care that are important for us in acute care, you know, because we share patients and people go from acute care to long-term care. So these are the kinds of things working as a system and not sort of in our silos. uh, I think that's been a huge learning um the other part of it is making sure that we have enough capacity throughout the healthcare system to deal with what's coming and, and what we actually have even now. We've known our population's been aging. Um but on top of it we've got new care needs. Um and I, I do think that this has shone a
1: light on that. Dr. Susie Hota, thank you so much for this. You're welcome. That was Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at University Health Network. Christine Ross, and this is the Zoomer Weekend Review. Coming up, National Nutrition Month.
0: You're listening to the Zoomer Weekend Review, brought to you by CARP, where you can meet like minded people fighting for a new vision of aging. Find out more at carp.ca.
1: It's National Nutrition Month, an annual campaign to promote healthy food choices and physical activity habits. At the start of the pandemic, worries about food shortages inspired people to get creative in the kitchen, buying flour in bulk to make their own bread. Some went old school and started pickling, leading to a shortage of mason jars. Now, two years in, how have our food choices changed? We reached registered dietitian and food advocate, Irina Forbes. So two years into a pandemic, for many, it was just a burden to navigate it and isolate from loved ones, let alone taking the time to make the right food choices. As a dietitian, what did you observe about Canadian eating habits during this trying time?
3: Well, I think that my my experience has definitely been that when we're under stress, depending upon how that stress coping strategy, if food was a part of that stress coping strategy, we definitely saw an increase in that stress coping strategy. If you had a tendency to maybe eat a little bit more or if you had a tendency to maybe eat a little bit less, both were experiences that happened, although I think more of the research has suggested snacking was more common as an experience. But we've seen sort of a little bit of all of the above in people's experience. There's definitely been uh, more of a move to cook from home the focus on food throughout the pandemic has been really beautiful to see and it's something that I'm I'm really loving seeing um, as a dietitian and somebody who loves food.
1: Pre-pandemic, one in eight Canadians were food insecure and it's going to be a while apparently before we know the full impact of the pandemic. Some say it will be up a full two percentage points. Now, of course, inflation has gone up. So what yeah. is the advice for people who are, are facing these challenges?
3: It, it's going to be really tough. I think... Some of the advice is looking to dietitians to see what your options are. It's also looking to what can you do within the constraints that you have. We know that, for instance, uh, food solutions don't solve not having the adequate financial constraints to be able to purchase food or have the option to, to choose those foods, so it's just a matter of working with what you can and recognizing that it's a, a major issue right now and that we're all aware and doing what we can to try to support all of Canadians, but we don't have a simple solution.
1: Are there food swaps that you can recommend to people?
3: To be able to save money, you can definitely look at going more plant-based. You can look at some of the beans, some dried foods, definitely looking at if you're trying to manage blood sugar control, you can look at adjusting your carb counting rather than trying to add a lot more vegetables. Of course, as a dietitian, I prefer to, to play with more vegetables, but there are ways around what that looks like. And I think also just being kind to yourself to do what you can. I think that's really the biggest piece that that we know that nourishing ourselves is a challenge. And so how can we do just a little bit more than what is possible no matter where we are? And, and yes, Budgeting is important and choosing some, some lower cost items can help, but that's not going to solve the financial issue of just not having enough income to, to purchase
1: food. You work in hospitals as well. You're a food advocate. You see people with various ailments. What would you say are your top tips for healthy eating when it comes to food as we age?
3: The difference between uh, the hospital as well as prevention outside of the hospital is, is the approach tends to be very different. So, we're always looking at quality of life and what, how to tailor each person's experience to where they are in their life at that point. So in prevention, you're going to be looking at, do you have any uh, chronic diseases? How are, what are the recommendations to be able to support some of those diseases, such as getting half your plate fruits and vegetables is a really big one. There's lots of people who aren't eating vegetables on a daily basis. And so even just getting starting with getting lemon and then trying to get to half of what you eat being vegetables is a really great way to start when you're at home. And then um, in the hospital setting, we're actually looking at sort of the flip side of that. We're just wanting people to get enough. Normally, there's an acute issue. Your body's working really hard to try to recover. So we're actually wanting to recommend that people just eat whatever they feel they can because there's something else going on. And so it's almost... different recommendations depending upon what's going on which shows how complicated food can be sometimes.
1: I have friends who are overwhelmed by preparing food let alone you know getting healthy food on the table they just find it a chore so when do people know when it's time that they need to bring a registered dietitian into their lives to help them figure it all out?
3: I would say that if you have any questions around food and you're just feeling stuck working with a dietitian can be a really beautiful process you know I, I know that I personally really love working with clients and being able to see them grow and feel confident in whatever it is that looks like and making something manageable. Sometimes you just don't know where to start and not knowing where to start is okay. <laughs> that's what a dietitian can help, help you start with so that you can look at what is the constraints that you're working with and what is a, a small step that you can make to make it fit into your overall life.
1: Irina Forbes, thank you for this. You're very welcome. That was registered dietitian and food advocate Irina Forbes. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Weekend Review. I'm Christine Ross for Libby's Nimer. Thanks for joining me today. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide.
0: Zoomer Weekend Review is produced by Zeev Hadi, Christine Ross, and Paul Thomas. Technical producer Justin Eacock. Executive producer Moses Nimer.